Well, good morning. This morning, it's our privilege to look at 23 verses in Acts chapter 18, so you might want to turn there in your Bibles, Acts chapter 18, and as is our custom, we're going to get the flyover big picture. There's five paragraphs in our section, and unlike some of the other passages we've looked at, we're going to spend the majority of our morning in the city of Corinth. Most of the action is going to occur in Corinth at the very end. We hit a transition section where Paul travels, ends his second missionary journey, and then begins his third missionary journey. What makes this passage distinctive is its emphasis on different people. Seven different people are going to appear in this passage, all of whom support Paul in his ministry. So that's going to be the primary focus, that the Lord works through people to spread the gospel. There are people who are front and center who do the speaking, and then there are countless people behind the scenes who support the work of the ministry by various means. So that's going to be the focus of our subject today. As a matter of fact, we're going to see a repeating cycle five times in this passage. We're going to be introduced to a person who assists in the work of the ministry, and then by the end of that section, we're going to see that the gospel goes forward. That cycle is going to repeat five times in this section and provides a major emphasis. And then right in the middle, our Lord is going to appear in a vision to the Apostle Paul. This is one of four visions in the book of Acts. And basically, our Lord is going to restate and personalize the Great Commission. Basically, encourage Paul by telling him to preach the gospel and that he is with Paul as he is in this uh, difficult city to evangelize. So the Lord works through people to spread the gospel in faithfulness to his promise. When he said, I am with you always, he indeed follows through on that. So let's begin our study as Paul arrives in the city of Corinth. Notice we begin reading in verses 1 through 3. After these things, he, that is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So here's the first character a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. And one of the other fascinating aspects of this passage is God's providence, the way God works in advance to provide needs. Paul traveled from Athens to Corinth, about 40 miles west. And upon his arrival, he discovers that the Lord already had things in place. Two years prior to his arrival in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla had been banished from Rome. Now, we're going to see two places in this passage where our text interfaces with secular history. According to the Roman historian Suetonius, who wrote during the New Testament era, as the Jews were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, he banished them from Rome. Most scholars feel that this is a reference to Christ, the Crestus either being a misspelled reference or perhaps an alternate spelling 
based on the Latin pronunciation. This occurred in 49 AD. So two years prior to Paul's arrival in Corinth, the Lord worked through secular history to see to it that a believing couple, Aquila and Priscilla, left Rome and established their work in Corinth and that they were of the same trade as the Apostle Paul. Rabbinical schools required their students to learn a trade. Paul was by trade a tent maker. Tents of that era were either made of leather, which seems to be the, the scholarly choice of what Paul did. Others hold that he made tents out of a woven goat's hair. As you know, uh, Paul was from a city that was renowned for raising the kind of goats that tents would have been made out of. But as you can imagine, cutting, sewing, making a tent was difficult work and therefore was a distinct trade. So in that era, Aquila and Priscilla would have had a shop and over that shop, they would have had a residence. When Paul arrived, they extended an invitation to him to live with them and to make tents with them. And so God provides a place for Paul to stay and a salary as he begins his ministry. And notice, in keeping with our cycle, in verse 4, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. <clears throat> so that notice that because of Aquila's and Priscilla's hospitality, Paul was able to reside in Corinth and he was able to what the text says, reason in the synagogue. That is, he would open the Old Testament and show how Christ fulfilled the prophecies described. So notice the lesson is that you and I can advance the cause of Christ in behind-the-scenes sort of way. Many of you have housed missionaries, provided living quarters for missionaries, perhaps as they're raising funds, raising support, or perhaps while they're on furlough. In this case, Aquila and Priscilla encouraged Paul by providing a place for him to live and a salary so that Paul would not have to uh, charge those who were uh, exposed to his ministry. It was important to the Apostle Paul that the unsaved not have to pay for his ministry so that he could present the gospel to the unsaved without cost. So in this short four-verse section, you get a feel for what our entire passage is going to be like. Men and women of faith behind the scenes supporting the work of the ministry so that the gospel advances. The text then describes the next team of supporters. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, implicit in this is a little bit of a mystery. How is it that when, when Silas and Timothy arrive, Paul can begin ministering full time? Well, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we discover that they brought a gift from the church at Philippi. And as a result, because of the gen generous gift of fellow believers, Paul no longer had to work as a tent maker. He did so for about two months. 
but now was able to engage full-time. And again, many of you support missionaries through your giving. You support your pastor. You support your pastoral staff. That is a way in which you and I can advance the cause of Christ by making it possible for gifted individuals to devote their undistracted time to the propagation of the gospel and to building up and encouraging believers. And that's exactly what happens. Notice in this verse, he devotes himself completely in undistracted devotion to the task, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So that he focuses on propagating the gospel and as a result, it serves as another practical way that you and I can serve behind the scenes to advance the cause of Christ. Now, sadly, in verse 6, we begin to read that there is increasing Jewish resistance. In verse 6, but when they resisted, that is the Jews, the word denotes an organized and united opposition. Okay, so things reached a crescendo where the Jews presented an organized and hostile response to what Paul was doing. Paul responds by shaking out his garments and saying to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. So that notice in both symbolic and verbal protest against their response, Paul announces that he had fulfilled his commission. He had taken the gospel to the Jew first, and now he was going to turn to Gentiles. Now, this doesn't mean he's given up on the Jews, but rather that he's going to focus his attention on winning Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. And again, you have to marvel at God's sovereignty. No sooner does he lose one place of ministry, leaving the synagogue, than God provides another place for the church to meet. Notice what happens in verse 7. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Isn't that just like our God? No longer ministering in the synagogue, our Lord provides a place right next door. Now, this individual's name, Titius Justus, the dual name indicates he was most likely a Roman citizen. Secondly, as a worshiper of God, we're told that even though he's a Gentile, he had identified with the God of Israel by faith. He was attending the synagogue. He had not submitted to circumcision and the full observance of the law, but he was a believer in the God of Israel. No doubt he heard the Apostle Paul as he taught in the synagogue and came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So the Lord provides a location in a strategic place where he could still attract Jews as they went to the synagogue, but at the same time, focus on ministry to Gentiles. And notice what happens in verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord, um, so that notice in verse 8, the cycle repeats. Because of the strategic location, the gospel was able to go forward. We're also told that the household of Stephanus came to faith in Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. So the gospel is continuing to go forward, and 
Titius Justice simply provides a place for the church to meet. Many of you provide your homes for Bible studies, for prayer meetings, uh, for outreach events. I remember growing up, we used to run vacation Bible schools in the neighborhoods of various members of our home. And at one point, we had 40 different members of our church provide their backyard, their garage, their home for us to hold neighborhood Bible clubs so that we could share the gospel. One summer, we reached close to 900 children as a result of the support of the various individuals who were a part of our church. So that this chart is on page four of your notes, but notice how simple and yet profound this passage is. Aquila and Priscilla provide a place to stay. Silas and Timothy bring financial support. Titius Justice provides a place for the church to meet. And so there's a legion of people who are serving behind the scenes so that the gospel can advance. And as a result, the Lord encourages us that we may not be the front and center person like the Apostle Paul. We may not be the one who is uh, teaching the Bible studies, but there are countless ways that you and I can support the work of the ministry. Okay, any questions or comments so far? Pretty straightforward with regard to the content, but any observations, things you'd like to share? What, uh, what does the term household mean in those days? Household would mean that um, at the same time their spouse and children came to faith in Christ. It doesn't specify how many were in that household. It can, it can be as narrow as his wife, or it could include one or more children and uh, ages that would have been sufficiently old to place their faith and trust. So apparently um, God saw to it that the whole family came to faith at the same time, which, which would be an awesome blessing. You know, many of you struggle with maybe a husband or a wife comes to faith prior to the rest of the family members. Great question. Any other comments? Okay, now we've come to the appearance of our Lord in verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So that, notice that here Christ appears visibly to the Apostle Paul and basically restates the Great Commission and personalizes it to Paul. Paul would not have had the Gospel of Matthew to read. He could not derive strength from the written revelation that you and I have. And apparently, Paul was feeling a great deal of apprehension in this point of the ministry. If you've ever felt nervous or apprehensive about what the future holds, apparently Paul had seen a pattern develop as he ministered in Macedonia, as he ministered in Galatia. A, an initial start that was very promising, increasing resistance by the Jews, which he has already seen in verse 6, followed by such vehement resistance that he's forced to leave the city. As a matter of fact, as he wrote 1 Corinthians, he wrote that he arrived in weakness and fear and in much trembling. So that apparently Paul was really worried about how long the uh, 
conditions in Corinth would remain stable. He was fearful that the Jews in their organized opposition would create an environment in which he would be driven out of that city. And so our Lord appears to him in a vision. This, as I said, is one of four times that the Apostle Paul receives a revelatory message from the risen Christ. The first was his conversion in the road of Damascus. The second was two years later, the Lord appeared and told him to leave Jerusalem. This is the third of those visions. And notice that our Lord begins by telling him not to be afraid. That's how we know that that Paul was struggling with fear. It's not explicit in this text. Uh, But as we compare it with 1 Corinthians and obviously with our Lord's address, we realize that he he was worried about these circumstances of his ministry there in Corinth. Our Lord then says, go on speaking and do not be silent. Proclaim the gospel. Fulfill the commission. You've gone to the Jew first. Now continue your ministry to the Gentiles. For I am with you. The wording is identical to that in the Great Commission. And you can only imagine how assuring that would have been. How often do you and I wish that we could actually see the visible presence of Christ with us in our ministry? I think that the bolstering of confidence and courage would be considerable. But our Lord tells Thomas, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Don't miss this. Christ is with you even though you don't see him. Just because his presence is invisible doesn't mean that it isn't equally real. That Christ is with you as you go throughout your day, as you take a stand for Christ and for his word. And as a result, you and I should be courageous in living our lives with skill according to the scriptures. No man will attack you in order to harm you. Uh, He promises his protection while he's at the city of Corinth. And when you think about it, when the good shepherd and the great shepherd says, no one is going to harm you, you can rest absolutely certain that that will indeed be the case. For there is no power that is greater than that of God, no power that is more almighty than that of our Lord. Notice he goes on to say, I have many people in this city. Paul's told that he will be successful in winning the loss and discipling believers in the city of Corinth. And as a result, he stays there for 18 months. The epistles of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians will also be written while he is in Corinth. Um, Okay, any questions or comments on that? Yeah. Uh, So since he's getting to stay there a longer period of time, do you think he was transitioning from just, you know, the, the gospel message, diving in deeper since he had more time then with these people, or was it more focused on spreading the gospel to more people within that town? Excellent, excellent question. I think he he did both. I I lament the fact that in my first message, um, I ran out of time, but actually earlier on in the book of Acts, we see that as people came to faith in Christ, 
Paul almost immediately turned toward building them up in the faith in addition to continuing the loss in Christ. So you're exactly right. A longer stay afforded him the opportunity not only to continue to win the loss, but to pour his knowledge into disciples so that they would uh, mature in the faith and gain a greater understanding of sound doctrine. Great observation. And wouldn't you have loved to have been in one of those meetings? So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you comment on the speculation that in terms of direct revelation that uh, Paul and Christ may have had a one-on-one -on -one teaching while he was in Arabia? Um, is this a rumor or is there any... There's no biblical evidence. It, it may be that the, what Paul was doing was processing his training as a rabbi in the light of Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, that now that he had the missing puzzle piece, he could go back and restudy the passages that will form the core of his ministry in terms of how Christ fulfilled uh, specific Old Testament passage. Last time I taught, uh, one of those passages was Psalm 16 and the resurrection uh, and other passages that Paul frequently cites in the context of his Old Testament study. So I think it was more that that golden opportunity to get away from it all and to rethink, restudy, and develop convictions on the basis of the text with regard to how Christ is the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Great question. Yeah. You just said uh, a phrase saying that Paul studied. How did he study? I mean, we have the Bible, we have it electronically. Uh, did he have the written word at some point? He would have had access via the synagogues and things like that. Uh, whether he was had any personal copies is highly conjectural. He does ask that the books and the parchments be brought to him while he's in prison, so he must have owned some personal copies of at least portions of the Old Testament. Um, he had a lot of scriptures memorized, most rabbis did, so that some of it would have been processing what he had committed to memory in light of, of Christ and his resur uh, resurrection. Um, so that, excellent question. Unfortunately, we don't know. It would have been highly unusual for any individual to have the entire Old Testament. As a matter of fact, it would have been unusual for them to be able to afford any portions of it. But when Paul asks for the books and parchments, most interpreters view that he must have had some portions. And maybe he made hand copies of... Um, sections that he found to be particularly Christological, Isaiah 53, uh, Psalm 16, other ones like that, where he actually copied them or had them copied. Uh, but great question. Yeah. As, as I read, you know, in a day worldwide, and of course, in America, of all this mental health, it's phenomenal to me that here's a guy who's admittedly fearful, blah, 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 right? But he went anyway. Exactly. No. In scripture, he calls him to action and commands him to not fear. He doesn't say, oh, quit sinning, you moron, blah, blah, blah. Right? <laughs> he just says, well, this is part of life and you've got to soldier on. Excellent. And I just, that just really is, I think, awesome. Excellent. 
Toward that end, let me also say, though, that um, I don't know that anyone in this room has ever been uh, fear-free. And I think that our Lord points him to the ultimate source of our strength. Because most, as I look around this room, many, if not all of you, are highly competent in your various careers. And yet, sometimes training, competence will only take you so far. And then suddenly you realize, I'm out of resources. Uh, as you know, I had uh, GB syndrome uh, in uh, November. I couldn't walk. And it was an eye-opening experience of how fragile I am as a creature and where the ultimate source of my strength needs to be. And occasions like that can cause us to refocus on what am I relying upon to minister? Is it my uh, reasoning skill? Is it my oratorical ability? Is it a particular pamphlet? Or is it reliance upon the Lord who commissioned us? And I think um, Paul regained a renewed sense of strength because of the renewed vision of the source upon whom he needed to rely. Great observation. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting that uh, the Lord came to uh, Paul in his obedience as obeying him. Absolutely. And uh, that seems to be a consistent thing. Uh, I mean, when the uh, ladies were, were leaving the tomb, after the resurrection, uh, the angel told the ladies to go and tell, and in fear, they obeyed, and in the process of going, the uh, Lord actually came to them Absolutely. in their obedience. Great observation. Yeah, you don't have to be disobedient to get direction and encouragement from the Lord. As a matter of fact, it was in his obedience. There's no indication that Paul was thinking about hanging up the towel or giving up, but the Lord knew his heart and provided the strength that he needed in the midst of his task of obedience. Excellent, excellent observation. Yeah. Jim, that went too far, right? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. My question was, Said the Lord went to went to him and told him, "Don't be afraid." Mm -hmm. You think he went back to the synagogue because he was getting that? You know, he was getting that pressure of you know really get out. He made it very gentle. You think he went that gave him strength to go back? I think he probably found that the the. Um residence of Tidius Justice was adequate, that the Jews who were interested in hearing him could stay there. But I think he went back to that experience because the negative experience Paul had had was organized opposition on the part of the Jews that became so intense that he had to leave city after city. So I think our Lord did go back to that experience, but I don't think it required Paul to go back to the synagogue per se. It just required him to not carry the baggage of what happened at countless synagogues where the opposition became really intense and become bold and continuous ministry. Great question. Thank you for pointing that out. My, if I miss your hand, you know, just call out or get a, get a friend to let you know that I miss you. It's not intentional on my part. Though, so, um, All right. So we return. Whoops. We return to the fact that Christ works through people. And we've got two more to look at. And this next one is a highly unlikely vessel for God to use. 
Notice we read in verse 12, but while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Gallio was an unbelieving Roman proconsul. And one of the fascinating things about this individual is that, again, biblical history coincides with secular history. Archaeologists have actually uncovered an inscription written by the Emperor Claudius that actually mentions receiving counsel from the proconsul Gallio. So that again, the Bible is confirmed by secular history. It also helps us with the dating. Gallio was only proconsul for two years. And again, you have to be awed by God's providence. God wanted this individual in the position of authority while Paul was in Corinth. Why? Gallio was in favor with Caesar. His brother was the philosopher Seneca, the personal tutor of Nero. So at this point, he is in well with Caesar himself. Also, he had a reputation for being a meticulous lawyer. He was known for, for being very careful in uh, his role as judge. So that even though he was anti-Semitic, the Lord would use a very unlikely vessel for the next advance of the gospel. Notice as we continue reading, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Corinth is one of those cities that has been um, studied, and so we know that the judgment seat would have been in the middle of the marketplace, an open public arena. It was a platform about seven and a half feet high where Gallio would come and hear cases. Here the Jews present a unified case against Paul that's a little different than some of the cases we've heard up until this point. They were arguing uh, that Ro since Rome did not permit new religions, that Christianity should not be considered a sect of Judaism, but rather a new religion that should be banned by the Roman Empire. So that was the case that they were laying before Gallio, and notice in verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. Do you hear the anti-Semitic element in there? But notice he had done his homework. He had done his research. And he doesn't even allow Paul to speak. Grab the magnitude of this miracle here. Here's a Roman proconsul who is stepping in to defend Paul without Paul having to say a word. So that here the Lord is working through Gallio in such a way that Gallio's first words are, this is not illegal. This is not a crime. He said, my job as a proconsul is to judge criminal offenses. So right out of the chute, he pronounces Christianity to not be a threat against Rome. Furthermore, he says, but if there are questions about words, a la the gospel, and names, a la Jesus Christ, 
and your own law, Christ as fulfillment of the Old Testament, look to it yourselves, I am willing to be a judge of these matters, and he drove them away from the judgment seat. Case dismissed. Now, the implications of this are huge, but before we go there, let's notice in verse 17, and they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat, but Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Again, uh, the corruption, the anti-Semitic emphasis is rampant, but the anti-Semitic crowd begins beating the person who brought the charge against the Apostle Paul. No doubt, not necessarily out of love for Paul or for the gospel, but out of hatred for the Jewish people. So that notice that God sovereignly works so that Rome now protects Christianity. For about the next 10 years, Christianity would be included as a sect of Judaism, as a part of Judaism that was protected under Roman law. That would be true in the province of Achaia, and it would provide a precedent for other Roman provinces. So that notice that the Lord sovereignly controls human governments, even those that are corrupt. So again, the wonderful interface between God's sovereignty, human individuals whom God uses, and the gospel going forward. Okay, any questions or comments on Gallio? Yeah. Okay, so Crispus got basically booted from being the, the head of the... Yeah, when he came to faith in Christ, apparently Sosthenes replaced him as the Jewish leader of the synagogue. There's some conjecture that this is actually the Sosthenes who will come to faith later. He is mentioned in the New Testament in... Um, Oh, First uh, Corinthians one one. Uh, so he may actually come to faith. Maybe the beating woke him up to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. But um, uh, but apparently it it was a name that was common enough that they're they don't want to make that claim with absolute certainty. So any other comments? Okay, then notice. Paul leaves after 18 months, so it would have been 13 months after his appearance before Gallio, a little over a year. In verse 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sancria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now, this is most likely a reference to a Nazarite vow. Paul is operating under his Jewish heritage. And in the Old Testament, a Nazarite vow was a vow of complete dedication to the Lord. Perhaps in response to the Lord's vision, Paul decided to make this vow in order to affirm his absolute and unswerving commitment to fearlessly proclaim the gospel. As an outward sign of having made this vow, a person who did this would abstain from the fruit of the vine grapes in every form. No grapes, no raisin, no grape juice, no wine. Furthermore, you would not cut your hair for the length of the vow. And the vow always had an end point as part of the Old Testament prescription. Apparently, Paul vowed to uh, maintain this while he was at Corinth, and with the end of his ministry at Corinth, he cuts his hair, 
in thankfulness and praise to God who was with him and protected him during his stay there. His hair would have been kept and taken with him to Jerusalem, and he would have offered it along with the sacrifice in the temple at Jerusalem upon his return there. So that notice that Paul um, fulfills his vow, giving praise and glory to God for having been with him and protecting him. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. So they go from Sincrea to Ephesus, a journey of about 250 miles by ship. And he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to say for a long time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them, saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he sent sail from Ephesus. So he ministers in Ephesus, finds a receptive audience, leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. Aquila and Priscilla provide, again, a place to say, a basis for ministry. So notice that the Lord also provides for anticipated needs. Paul is going to come back to Ephesus. As a matter of fact, next time we're going to see the majority of his focus is going to be on the city of Ephesus. So at the end of this passage, notice again the simple ways in which God provides. We read that he set sail from Ephesus when he landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church, most likely at Jerusalem. He would have offered his hair in a sacrifice in Jerusalem and went down to Antioch. He will spend the winter in Antioch, leave Antioch, and pass successfully through the Galatian region, the Phrygian region, and finally come back to emphasis. And that'll set the stage for our next study. Okay, I got the two-minute warning one and a half minutes ago, so I guess we're done for this morning. Thanks again for the privilege. It's been a good... Can you look back to that chart? Sure. You're welcome. You want me to? Yeah. Oh, God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you use men and women to further your cause in a variety of different ways. And Lord, I pray that in, by way of application that we would consider how you would use us. Perhaps it's providing a place to stay. Perhaps it's providing a place to meet. Perhaps it's giving generously and heartily to the work of the Lord. But Lord, we pray that we would go forth and advance your cause in the power that you give to the honor and glory of your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.